If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, uh, and we'll read through verse 11 today. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. And if you're visiting with us, I do extend a warm welcome to you. Uh, if you have a few minutes to spare after service, I, I would love to get to, to meet you and spend some time with you if you're available. Um, if you are visiting with us, we've been uh, walking together as a church through the book of 2 Corinthians for the last month now, and uh, we're going to continue that in our time to get to, together once again, starting in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll read through verse 11, we'll pray, and then we'll look at this together. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in Scripture that your word is a lamp unto our feet, and it's a light to our path. And as we navigate this dark world, you have given us a tool to illuminate our way. And that tool is none other than your living word. And so we turn to it this morning for help, Lord, and for direction and guidance. And I pray that through our time this morning and the brief moments that we share together, that your powerful spirit would engage our minds and therefore also transform our hearts. Make our hearts like Christ's. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. As we've seen through our time in 2 Corinthians, this book is much like a puzzle in that it was written by a real man named Paul, and it was written to a real group of people, the church of Corinth, and it was written in response to real events, a real relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. And unfortunately, we don't have every specific detail about what happened between Paul and this church in Corinth. And so we're forced to take Paul's writing and kind of piece together what most likely happened based on what Paul says about the events. Um, just like a puzzle, the more pieces that you have and the more that you put together, uh, the more clarity you gain of the picture, the clearer the picture becomes. And in the same way, the more that you read through Second Corinthians and the more that you really sit down and, and study it, the more, uh, the, the, the greater clarity uh, between what happened between Paul and the Corinthian church occurs. Um, this morning, the passage that we read actually gives us another piece of the puzzle. To this point, Paul's attention has been directed towards the entire church of Corinth, the entire congregation. But now, in this passage, Paul's attention actually turns to an individual. 
He's not, he's not named because everybody knows who Paul's talking about. In the original context, they didn't need a name. They didn't need more details. Everybody knew who Paul was talking about. Uh, and as he turns his attention to this individual, this unnamed individual, he's, he's still instructing the church as a whole about what they need to do. But the focus now revolves around this particular person. This particular person was Paul's offender. It's the one who attacked Paul, and this gives us further clarity. And judging by other passages in 2 Corinthians, we can kind of piece together a picture of what has happened, particularly on Paul's painful visit that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. As I mentioned, the Corinthian church, it was planted by Paul, Paul spent a year and a half with them. He he left the Corinthian church, and sometime after Paul left, the church was infiltrated by traveling preachers who influenced the church against Paul as their founder. And so in response to this, Paul pays them a visit, and it doesn't go very well. And here's the reason why. Most likely, there was a person of influence within the church itself. He's not one of the traveling preachers, but this person within the church has bought into the lies that these traveling preachers say about Paul. And then this man probably publicly attacked Paul on the matter during his visit. And the rest of the church just sat passively by and let it happen as Paul came under public attack and slander from this individual. And so Paul leaves the visit. He's, he's dejected. And instead of visiting a second time, which was his original intention, he writes them this painful letter. He rebukes the church as a whole for their collective action. He, 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 he uh, essentially calls the church out on acting so passively towards this man, and he calls this man out. And we find that the response to this painful letter actually had a favorable response. In, in chapter 7, the majority of the church, Paul mentions that the majority of the church actually repents. They they realize their error. And so they repent, which is exciting for Paul. And we find that after they had repented, they they actually handle Paul's attacker as a response to to the letter. They in turn uh, turn on this attacker. They are the ones that collectively enforce what we would call um, formally, church discipline is what has happened here. Unfortunately, though, the church overreacts. The pendulum swings too far the other way. At first, they were too passive in their dealings with this individual, and now they're too assertive in the dealings with this individual. And this is what Paul addresses, and this is why Paul writes in this passage. And amazingly, in, in this passage, Paul calls on the church now to forgive the man who had attacked him. This is what the passage is about, forgiveness. Now we could uh, take a very introspective and individual look at this passage and come out the other side this morning saying, my personal application, my individual application is that I need to forgive people. And that wouldn't necessarily be wrong. However, to take a text like this and apply it merely to the self, merely to just me on an individual and personal level would actually rip the passage out of its context. Uh, 
because Paul addresses this issue from what I would call a corporate perspective. Now, when I use the word corporate, don't think corporate like corporation or big business or big money. When I, what I mean when I use the word corporate is that this is a collection of individuals. Paul, Paul is writing to a collection of people, the local church, and addressing how they as a collection of individuals should react corporately, collectively to the situation. We see this in the first couple of uh, verses here. We see shades of this, right? When Paul mentions that, yes, he is the one that caused me pain, but in turn, in causing me pain, he caused pain to all of you. Just as one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body suffers. And and then down in verse six, the, the individual was punished by the collection of the church, right? The majority of the church. And now Paul calls on them to reaffirm their plural, your as a whole, your love for him and to forgive him as a whole body of believers. And so, yes, Paul wants the reader to understand the quality of forgiveness and the quality of restoration. But he wants the reader to understand the quality of forgiveness and restoration within the context of the greater local church. And in order to understand forgiveness and restoration within the context of the local church, we have to ask the question, what is the local church anyway? What is this thing that we are doing here right now? Why does the local church exist? What are we? Who are we? There's an author that was great help to me this week. His name is Jonathan Lehman. Uh, He has written an excellent book on church membership where he speaks about uh, what the local church actually is. He addresses this question. Uh, Lehman is the editorial director of an organization, a ministry called Nine Marks, which is a ministry devoted to uh, equipping churches with a biblical vision and practical resources so that they may be healthy. And in this book, Lehman uses an extremely helpful analogy about the local church that I'm going to shamelessly rip off from him this morning. Um, Lehman explains that many people have a weak view of the doctrine of the local church because they view it as one thing when it actually is something completely different. Many people, especially in our Western culture, uh, in the Western church, they view the local church like a club with people that come alongside with a shared interest in, uh, in God, a shared interest in religious things. So we're merely all coming together because it's one big club and we're all interested in religion. And that's what brings us together. And the best part about this is that it comes with a free trial membership, right? It's a, it's a matter of I can go and I can try it out. And if I don't like it, and I don't like what they do, and I don't really particularly care for the people, then I can just leave, and I can make a relatively easy exit. I don't have to commit to anything, because if I commit, then i got to be held accountable, and nobody really wants that. But that's not what the local church is. The, The local church isn't a club. The local church is also not a service provider. It doesn't exist merely to provide services or, or, or meet the felt needs of its people. It's not here so that you can get your religious fix on Sunday. 
your tune-up, if you will, get the oil changed uh, in your religion, and it'll make it. You'll make it through the week then, and then and then you'll come back next Sunday for your next tune-up. That's what a service provider looks like. No, this the church isn't. The local church is not a service provider. And this may sound confusing to some of us because there is. Uh, an aspect of both of those elements within the local church. In some senses, we do get that, but the difference between those things and what the church truly is, the local church, the the difference is where the church begins, where it finds its foundation in purpose. Lehman, he, he writes that clubs begin with a point of interest. And service providers begin with a common felt need uh, or uh, a, a service, a desire that people need fill. But the church doesn't begin with either of those things. The church begins actually with a king, King Jesus, who has died on the cross for his people's redemption. And now this king calls for obedience among his people. And so if Jesus is king, then the people who believe in Jesus are a part of his kingdom. And Jonathan Lehman explains that if the universal church, the collection of believers as a whole, is Christ's kingdom, then we need to actually view the local church as an embassy of that kingdom. Well, what is an embassy? An embassy, it's a recognized institution that represents one nation while inside another foreign nation. And it's the embassy's role to always declare its own nation's interest to the foreign nation that is hosting them. And it's the embassy's role to support the citizens of their home nation that are living abroad in the foreign host nation. Now, something that we need to understand how we relate to this as individuals, an embassy can't make you a citizen. They don't have the authority to do that. Only the king can do that. But what can an embassy do? Well, an embassy can officially affirm your citizenship. They can look at all the evidence and they can look at all the paperwork and they can pull up your records and they say, yeah, here you are. You are indeed a citizen of our nation. And therefore you have all the rights and the privileges and even responsibility that go with being a citizen of our nation. Believers of King Jesus find their citizenship in heaven. That's the kingdom that we belong to. Yet we roam around a foreign land of the world. Scripture is clear that the world is not our home. It's foreign territory, but there is a place in the world where believers can find official recognition. And that's the local church. It's the embassy. So in the most basic sense, a church member, right, is one who goes to the local church and says, I'm a citizen of heaven. And the local church sits down with them and gets to know them and, and, and looks for all the evidence of that claim and eventually gets them up here and says, we affirm that. Yes, you are. We believe that you're a citizen of heaven as well. And then they, they publicly affirm that. Now, the local church, much like an embassy, should always represent Christ's rule. 
And it should always proclaim Christ's law. And it should always proclaim and represent Christ's ways. One of the local church's primary responsibilities is to guard the reputation of Christ. And so what happens when a citizen of heaven within the context of the local church starts acting in a way that is actually contradictory to Jesus's rule? acting in a way that is so blatantly against what Jesus has said and what he has taught. Well, when that happens, the local church, a collection of believers, not one or two or a group, but a collection of believers as an embassy who seeks to represent Christ in his way and his rule, actually have the responsibility to take corrective action. Now this corrective action, it has to be done in grace and in love and with tender patience and godly wisdom. And it needs to follow an appropriate process. Jesus himself actually laid out the process of what this looks like in Matthew 18. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have the time to walk through that process this morning. So I leave that to you to study uh, on your own time for now. But there is a process that the collection of believers should follow. And in that process, according to Jesus himself, if the guilty party refuses to accept corrective action, If they refuse to acknowledge their own sin, they refuse to repent, they refuse to recognize that their ways are contrary to Jesus's ways, despite the fact that many people have called them on it tenderly and graciously, then it can get to the point, Jesus says. Jesus himself, if you don't like it, take it up with him. It gets to the point where the local church as the embassy has to say, we no longer have the confidence that you are a citizen of heaven. You, you may very well be. That's not our call. We aren't the judge, but we just don't see the evidence. And so we're going to view you as one who is not a citizen. You can keep showing up and come around here, but we will look at you differently now. You're not going to have all the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of a citizen. This is a painful process and it's a delicate process and no one wants to get to that point. It is always a sad day for the church when it has to go that far. And what we have here in 2 Corinthians is an example of this. This is what happened with this individual who attacked Paul in the Corinthian church. Back in our passage, according to verse 6, the church punished Paul's offender, the church implemented what we would call formal church discipline on the guy. So let's work through this together and see the the wonderful news that comes out. It sounds like a major downer (laughs) this morning, uh, but there is a a wonderful gospel of grace in this message. Uh, Two things that I want to draw our attention to in verse six. First, notice what Paul doesn't say. In our culture right now, where we actually have a hesitancy to discipline, right? Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't reprimand the church for punishing the man to begin with. To Paul's judgment, the punishment was necessary. 
Paul doesn't write, hey, just love the guy. Just love the guy and he'll come around eventually. Just give the guy more grace. It's mean or it's unloving to punish him. Paul doesn't say, oh, give him one more chance. You may have given him a hundred chances to repent, but you ought to give him just one more. Why don't you? Now, Paul doesn't say any of that because there was an infraction. And an infraction requires a penalty. It requires a punishment. We understand this concept. We understand this on a very small level in sports, don't we? We get frustrated when we're watching a football game and there's a clear penalty on the field and the ref misses it. We want the yellow flag to be thrown when a penalty happens in the game because the integrity of the game actually depends on it, even if it's against our own team. There are times that you can watch the game and you can say, this is my team. I'm, I'm sad that it happened, but he broke the rules and he needs to have a flag thrown on him. The punishment, the penalty of the man in this passage is necessary. And Paul affirms the church in their initial action toward the man. But then Paul goes on to write that the punishment of the majority is enough. It's enough. In other words, the punishment accomplished what it set out to do. Now, the only reason that Paul would say that it was enough in this situation was if the man repented. And so since the man repented in verse eight, Paul calls on the church to publicly reaffirm their love for him. Basically, Paul is saying, just as you publicly disciplined him, now he's repented and you must publicly restore him. Give him back his affirmation of citizenship. Welcome him back into the family. It's time. You see, when a church is convinced that a person is genuinely repentant, that's when discipline has to end and restoration must happen. And there is no exception to that. And with this, we actually see the purpose of discipline. The end goal of any sort of discipline is always, always restoration. Its purpose is always to turn people away from their sin and back to God. So the Corinthian church fulfilled their responsibility of calling out this man's sin. The man repents, did what he was supposed to do, and now Paul tells them that it's time to restore him. And if you don't restore him, you're just being vindicative. And you're punishing for punishment's sake. You're punishing for all the wrong reasons. You're disciplining just to be punitive. And if, and if you, you punish uh, for all the wrong reasons, if you've missed the whole point of discipline, then you might as well not even do it because disciplining for the wrong reasons or with the wrong outcome in mind is just as bad as not disciplining at all. Discipline so that they may be restored. That's our goal. That's our hope so that we can rejoice when people turn to God. And a critical piece in this restoration process is not just the attitude of the repentant, but the attitude 
of the one who has issued the discipline. It's this attitude of forgiveness. Forgiveness is required to accomplish true restoration. Restoration is actually impossible without a heart of pure forgiveness. So what does it mean to forgive? Well, it's a two-way street in a sense. It's a, it's a transactional process. We've already talked about the first part. It begins with the offender. In a sense, the offender is actually indebted to the one who the offense was against. And so true forgiveness begins when the person who has wronged you comes forward and repents. They own up to their mistake and they recognize what they did was wrong or how they acted was not honoring to God. That's the starting line in this two-way street of forgiveness. The finishing line is when the offended party releases the offender from the bondage in their mind. It's when you have unchained them. They are indebted to you. And so to forgive them, you release them from that debt. They no longer owe you. You have pardoned them from their offense. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to forget. It doesn't necessarily mean that trust will be immediately restored. And it doesn't even mean that there won't be some consequences as a result. What it does mean, though, is that you will never hold that particular offense against them again. It means that you won't charge them for the same offense and continually hold it against them over and over and over again. They have a clean slate in your mind. That is forgiveness. And that is what Paul calls on the Corinthians to do with this man, to forgive him and to restore him to his proper place of fellowship. And then Paul explains why they need to do this. I see four reasons in the passage of why they need to extend forgiveness to the man. We'll walk through these briefly together. First, verse six, you need to forgive because if you don't, this man will be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If you don't forgive him, he will experience excessive sorrow. Now, let me point out once again that Paul chooses his words carefully here. Right? His concern is not that the man experienced sorrow because frankly, our sin should create sorrow. If our sin is opposite of what the perfect God has in store for us, then there should be sorrow. Our sin should make us sad. We should be sad that we've gone against a holy God. In fact, it's one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. The Holy Spirit produces in us that sorrow. And so let's be real for a moment. If we don't mourn our sin, if, 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 we, if our sin doesn't make us sad, we have either grown so callous toward the Holy Spirit, or perhaps we don't even have the Holy Spirit. Our sorrow for sin is actually evidence that we are in Christ and that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. 
Paul goes on and talks about this later on in chapter 7, uh, this such sorrow as I described. Paul calls it godly sorrow, and it's necessary because godly sorrow leads to repentance. But Paul says there is another kind of sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow doesn't lead to repentance into life. No, worldly sorrow leads to death. And so Paul's concern for this man is that if you do not forgive him, he will move from godly sorrow, which he experienced, which led him to repentance, and he will begin to to experience worldly sorrow that you are unjustifiably laying on him. Paul says that that without your forgiveness, he will face excessive sorrow or sorrow above and beyond what was necessary. And this will sink him. He will be overwhelmed by the excessive sorrow. The sorrow will swallow him. The the, the picture that we get is of a drowning person who has become so overcome by a rush of waves, just pulling him under the current of grief. This will sink him. And that's on you. That's the first reason Paul tells them to forgive the man so he doesn't, uh, that he isn't overwhelmed. He isn't swallowed by more sorrow than what's necessary. First reason. The second reason Paul gives is actually in verse nine. Paul tells them to forgive the man because it's an act of obedience. If you, if you want to obey and, you, and your obedience will show me that you're righteous, then forgive the man, reinstate him. And, and, and you know what? If you don't obey, you're going to show me where your heart truly is. You're going to show your true colors. Paul says, I wrote, I wrote this letter as as a test or a proof of your full obedience. You're going to show me uh, where your heart is and your understanding is if you obey fully, first in punishing the guy and now offering him forgiveness, right? If you don't forgive him, you're showing me that you really don't get this, right? That you're not willing to be obedient, that you don't have a clear understanding. Basically, if you understand this gospel thing, then forgiveness should come naturally to you. And it should come naturally to you because you yourself were forgiven, which is the third reason that Paul gives for forgiving the man. In verse 10, Paul invokes the name of Christ. Paul tells him, look, forgive the man. I've forgiven the man. And you have to know that anything that I forgive, it's in the presence of Christ. I forgive because I'm in Christ's presence. What's happening here is Paul's drawing attention to just that awkward situation of not forgiving somebody with Jesus standing in the room right there. That's awkward, right? Because Jesus has forgiven us of far greater things than, than, than what anybody could ever do to us. And so for us to withhold forgiveness with Jesus standing right there in his presence is just kind of an awkward situation, right? The greatest display, Paul wants to remind the Corinthian church, the greatest display of forgiveness is what we have in Christ. Because we committed just grievous offenses against God. We committed high treason. We have idols in our hearts all against God. We have taken God off the throne where he rightfully belongs. The ultimate offense against God and we deserved punishment because of it. Yet Jesus went to the cross to pay the debt and all of those who turned to him 
are promised by God to be forgiven. They are forgiven of their debt, their insurmountable debt against God. And if Jesus can forgive us of our insurmountable debt, there's no reason that we can't forgive others of mild infractions in comparison. Jesus actually speaks to this in his own teaching in Matthew 18. Jesus um, tells this parable, a story of a servant who owed his master 10,000 bags of gold, which is a lot of money, and he couldn't repay him. So the servant begged for mercy on his knees and he promised the master that he would, would, would pay it back in full. And the master actually showed compassion on his servant and said, no, you're not going to pay it back in full. I'm just going to cancel your debt. You've got a clean slate. And so the servant then goes out after this happens and finds one of his buddies in the story, a fellow servant, and this buddy of his owed him like a hundred silver coins, which is like lunch money in comparison to what he owed his master. And he goes to his buddy and he says, I want you to pay me back those a hundred silver coins. Jesus actually goes as graphic to say that he grabs his neck. The guy is like literally wringing his servant's neck saying, give me back my money. Well, the original master hears about this story and he is just livid. And so he brings the servant in and he says, how could you do something like that? How how could you not forgive this man of this small debt when I have forgiven you of this insurmountable debt? He's angry and he actually throws the guy in prison because of it for not repaying him. And what we have here, the whole parable, it teaches that the primary reason we forgive is because Jesus has forgiven us. There's no more motivation that you need for forgiving your loved ones and forgiving your not so loved ones than the fact that Jesus has forgiven you. Our forgiveness is patterned after God's forgiveness towards us. Our forgiveness uh, towards others mimics and reflects who we are in Christ. And if you are unwilling to forgive, have you really tasted the forgiveness of Christ? Are you even in Christ without that understanding? An unwilling to forgive is poisonous in the avenue of grace. It's not the way of God. It's not the will of God. It's actually the way and will of Satan, which is the final reason that Paul gives the Corinthians to forgive. Down in verse 11, Paul tells the church, if you don't forgive, If you don't restore this man at the proper time, then Satan will dupe you. He will take utmost advantage of the situation. Paul says, we know about Satan. We know what he's capable of. We aren't ignorant to his ways and his designs and his plans and his mind. A a literal translation has wordplay here. Paul writes, literally, we are not unmindful of Satan's mind. We must understand that Satan's mind is always set on destroying the will and the way of God. Satan's will is always contrary to God's will. And so if it is the will of God to forgive at the time of repentance, then we can guarantee that it's the will of Satan to withhold forgiveness from the repentant. And so for us, this is how serious this is. 
for us to withhold forgiveness from someone who has properly repented is to play right into the hands of the devil himself. We actually, in that moment, are agents of the devil, tools in his wicked hands when we don't forgive at the appropriate time. We need to know who we're dealing with here and how serious of a situation this really is. You see, some people uh, make an error they, when, they, when they give Satan too much credit, right? when they assume that he is more powerful than he really is. But equally an error are those who don't give him enough credit. The ones that don't know or understand what he and his entourage are capable of. You see, Satan and Jesus are not equal forces. This is not some sort of cosmic battle here between uh, good and evil, and we're just kind of waiting in limbo to see which one will prevail. That's not the case at all. We're not unsure of what's going to happen. No, quite the contrary. We have full assurance that the devil has been defeated, that the head of the serpent has been crushed. But Satan, like a serpent, like a snake, who's had its head cut off, and he doesn't know it yet. And he's like that snake whose head has been cut off, and he doesn't know he's dead yet. So he slashes about his body, seeking to cause as much damage and destruction while he still can. He's trying to bring as much ruin to the kingdom of God as he can on his way out. And so don't think for a second that Satan can't and hasn't brought down entire churches because there are those who take the legalistic approach and are unwilling to forgive the repentant person. Satan is scheming, prowls around like a a, a roaring lion ready to devour is what Peter writes. And he makes every attempt to rip the body of Christ apart limb from limb. And a disinclination to forgive, Paul says, both corporately and individually, is just one of the tools that he uses to do so. And so, yes, we have full assurance. We are secure in our salvation individually, having been established in Christ. But the life and vibrancy of a local church, a gathering of believers, depends on its spirit-empowered people demonstrating the same forgiveness that Christ gave to them at the cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I um, personally lift up FAC to you. I pray, Father, that our people, our members, who we are as a body of believers would be marked by a forgiving attitude, Lord, that we would be bold in our dealing with sin and that we would, we would exercise the responsibility to walk together in a way that's godly and honoring to you, Father. But then we would also be so quick to forgive, Lord, when someone has realized their error, Father. I pray that you would protect this place from our sin and that that we wouldn't give Satan a foothold, Lord. 
And Father, I thank you for the forgiveness that you have given to us through Christ. Father, I would ask that if there's anybody here who who has not been forgiven, they have yet to come to you in repentance and have yet to own up to how they've acted against you, that today would be the day and they would experience your grace and your forgiveness through Jesus on the cross. We thank you, Father, for your word. And we praise your name. And in your holy name I pray, amen.